Welcome to AUSA's Army Matters Podcast. This is Thought Leaders with Joe Craig. My guest today is Giles Milton. He's the author of Checkmate in Berlin, the Cold War showdown that shaped the modern world. Giles Milton is the internationally best-selling author of a dozen works of narrative history, including Soldier, Sailor, Frogman, Spy, Airman, Gangster, Kill or Die, How the Allies Won on D-Day. His previous work, Churchill's Ministry of Ungentlemanly Warfare, is currently being developed into a major TV series. Milton's works, published in 25 languages, include Nathaniel's Nutmeg, serialized by the BBC. He lives in London and Burgundy. Mr. Milton, welcome to the podcast. Hi, thanks for having me on. So, uh, Mr. Milton, you know, Berlin obviously becomes the center point of the Cold War for decades, and it all comes back to events in the final months of World War II. So, to set the scene for our listeners, could you just explain how it came to be that the Allies were sharing power in a city deep within Soviet-controlled territory? Yeah, I think it really begins with the famous Yalta Conference in February of 1945. This is where President Roosevelt, Winston Churchill and Stalin get together to really work out what is going to happen at the end of the war. They all know that they have this unlikely alliance has won the war against Hitler. But who's going to win the peace? Well, one of the big decisions that's taken at the Yalta Conference is that this unlikely wartime alliance between the Soviet Union on one side and Britain and America on the other, they're going to try and continue this alliance. They want this to outlast the war. They want to remain as partners in rebuilding Europe and the world in the aftermath of World War II. One other big thing they decide, and this is directly relevant for Berlin, is that Germany itself is going to be divided into two separate parts. The Soviets are going to get the east of Germany, and the Americans and the British are going to get the west of Germany. And they're going to do the same thing with Berlin. They're going to split, you know, Hitler's destroyed capital is going to be split into two parts as well. And the Soviets likewise will get the east of Berlin, and the Brits and the Americans will get the west of Berlin. But, you know, if any of your listeners are to look at a map and look where Berlin is, Berlin sits fairly and squarely in the Soviet zone of occupied Germany, which means that the capital city is like a little island surrounded by a sea of red. So as long as the alliance with the Soviets holds out and works, everything's going to be good. But the moment there are tensions or problems between the Brits and Americans on one side and the Soviets on the other, then potentially Berlin is in big trouble because the garrison troops, the Americans and the British troops, could find themselves totally isolated in West Berlin, surrounded by this sea of red, which is Soviet-occupied Germany. And speaking of that sea of red, I think a lot of people don't appreciate how vastly outnumbered the Western Allies were by the Soviets at that point. Churchill's Operation Unthinkable provides a good illustration of that kind of imbalance. Would you give us a quick overview of the plan and why it was quickly shelved? Yeah, so President Roosevelt, once the war was won, his objective was really to get American troops home as quickly as possible, and likewise with the British. So very soon after the war came to an end, these huge armies that have been fighting in Western Europe go home. And this leaves the Red Army, Stalin's army, as the only great military force left in Europe at the time, which poses particular problems, a real headache for Winston Churchill, who sees the danger of millions of Soviet troops controlling you know, much of Eastern Central Europe and potentially marching into Western Europe as well. And so Churchill, and this is really extraordinary, just a few weeks after the war has come to an end, He's already planning this thing called Operation Unthinkable, 
which is a massive attack on the Red Army, on the part of the Americans and the British. They're going to get together while their armies are still intact. They're going to push east and they're going to try and destroy the Red Army. I mean, this is absolutely extraordinary. These two armies, the Americans and British on one side, have been fighting alongside the Red Army until a few weeks before. And now Churchill effectively, as World War II comes to a close, he's already preparing for World War III, a mass attack on Stalin's forces. So one of the great character, one of the many great characters in the book is Colonel Frank Howland Mad Howley. Would you please tell us about him and how he handled his role as the commandant of the American sector? Yes. So Berlin has been divided into four sectors, American, British, French on one side and Soviet on the other. And each of these sectors required a commandant. So the American commandant is to be this guy called, as you say, Colonel Frank Howling Mad Howley. And he's kind of an all-American cowboy. He knows how to get things done. And he's determined to run his sector of the city, the American sector of the city, with a rod of iron. And he is very much going to be wielding that rod of iron. And what's fascinating about Colonel Howley is that before anyone in Washington or anyone in London realized that this wartime alliance with Stalin had come to a close, there was no way this was going to be able to continue into the post-war period. Already, Colonel Howley, within days of arriving in Berlin, he knows that this alliance can no longer function. And he actually says in his wonderful diaries, his very detailed diaries, he wrote, he said, I came to Berlin thinking that the Germans were the enemy. But I very quickly realized that actually it's the Soviets who were our enemy. So really from the moment he arrived in the city, he realized that the Soviets and Stalin had a plan for Berlin. And that plan was to kick out the Western allies, kick out the Americans and the Brits and take over the whole of the city. And this was to be a prelude to them also taking over the whole of Germany. So Howley not only is a hero because he just gets things done, he's a fascinating character, very, very dynamic, but much sort of more importantly, he realizes that the wartime alliance is over. We've entered a new period and that Stalin, this erstwhile wartime ally, is now the enemy and has to be treated as such. And one of the most amazing things I found about Howley is that you know, not only was he ruling with a rod of iron, as you say, but in addition to being an all-American cowboy, he was also an intellectual, studying at the Sorbonne, studying fine art, teaching himself five different languages. But that notwithstanding, I mean, his style of dealing with the Russians was quite different from that of his boss and his British counterpoints. Would you go over that for our listeners? Yes, because you have a curious mixture of characters, particularly amongst these four commandants of which really the American, British and Soviet were the key. The French had a very small role to play. But if you take the British commandant, he was called Brigadier Robert Looney Hind. <laughs> a wonderful name. He was a sort of rather eccentric character who'd been brought up in Imperial India, as so many of the Brits in Berlin, they'd come up through the imperial system. And he was determined to rule his sector of the city, a bit like a cricket umpire. I mean, Colonel Howley found him ridiculously fair-minded. But anyway, these four commandants, they met in a body called the Commandatura. So not only did they rule their own sectors with unprecedented power, but it was realized that they needed to get together because some things had to be discussed on a citywide basis. So they met once or twice a week in a building in the western part of the city. And there they thrashed out the really big problems, problems like denazification. They wanted to denazify the city. 
problems such as rationing. Food was tightly rationed because there was so little food in the city at the time. But again, from day one, they could not agree on anything. They couldn't even agree on who should get the most rations. So Colonel Howley, for example, perfectly reasonably argued that the people who should get the biggest rations were the sick, the weak, the elderly and the infirm. They needed all the food they could get. Whereas the Soviets and his opposite number, General Kotikov, argued that no, the biggest rations should go to the journalists, to the political classes, to the people who wielded influence. These are the ones that should get the most food. And there's one rather telling aside in those meetings when um, Colonel Howley turns to his Soviet opposite number and he said, but you can't kick a lady when she's down. And his Soviet opposite number turns to him and says, why, my dear Colonel Howley, that's exactly when you should kick her. So from that anecdote, you can see that there's a completely different approach between what the Soviets wanted to achieve and what the British and Americans wanted to achieve in their sectors. And so right from day one, really, this was not going to work. The trying to run the city using this body called the Commandatura was not going to work. Right. So you note how Howley kind of sussed out the Russians early on. What is it that starts to convince others eventually that the Soviets have malign intentions? I think on the ground, of course, in Berlin, there's all sorts of things going on. There's unbelievable sort of criminal underworld. There are gangsters rife in the streets. There are ex-Nazis. There are pimps. There are extortionists. And there are allied troops all playing the black market. You've got this extraordinary sort of cocktail of crime taking place. And right from the very outset, you have already gun battles taking place between the Soviet troops and Americans and British troops. So you've got all this bubbling away in Berlin, this sort of a heady mixture taking place on the ground. But you've also got a breakdown in relations on the bigger scene. So in the spring of 1946, a key moment when Winston Churchill, who's no longer prime minister of Great Britain, he's been voted out of office, but he nevertheless makes a trip to the United States meets with President Truman, and famously, I'm sure many of your listeners will know this, he travels down to Fulton, Missouri, and he makes possibly the most famous speech of the post-war period, his Iron Curtain speech. And up until this moment, both in Washington and in London, the powers that be, the governmental figures, the diplomats, the statesmen, they're holding on to this alliance with Stalin. But Churchill, in 1946, in Fulton, Missouri, publicly declares that Stalin can no longer be trusted, that he's gone from wartime ally to post-war foe. He is the enemy. He's creating his own communist satellite states in Eastern Europe. And Churchill really says that this is the end of that alliance. So this is a really big moment. And many people have seen Churchill's Iron Curtain speech as really firing the first gun of the Cold War. That wartime alliance is over with that speech. We'll dive into our next topic after this. Did you know, as a member of AUSA, you have access to many benefits? From car rental to entertainment discounts, the opportunities are ample. Visit www.ausa.org benefits to learn more. The book then does a great job of describing the mounting tensions throughout the early post-war years. What's the tipping point that ultimately leads to the blockade in the summer of 1948. 
I mean, I think there's a number of factors. As I said, it began with the Churchill Iron Curtain speech. But then, of course, you have a dramatic shift in policy from the idea originally set out at Yalta in 1945 was that Germany was going to be totally dismantled. All its industries were going to be dismantled. Now there's a sudden shift in 1946, 1947. The Western Allies, the Americans and the British primarily, decide that no, we're not going to dismantle Germany. In fact, we're going to rebuild Germany. We're going to rebuild Western Germany specifically. And so you then get two important things. You get the Truman Doctrine, which states that any country threatened by communism or by the Soviet Union will be protected by the economic might of America and Western Europe. And of course, you also have the Marshall Plan, which really is little short of the rebuilding of both Germany and of Western Europe. So millions and millions of American dollars are going to be pumped into Europe to rebuild this continent that is totally shattered by war. So this is the backdrop to everything that is going to happen in the spring of 1948, when we have this dramatic moment when Stalin does what everyone has worried that he's going to do, which is he shuts off, he blocks off the Western sectors of Berlin. And the immediate response to being cut off was rather mixed among the Western allies. You've got Howley, who's ready to stick it out, even though the military odds, to put it mildly, were against him. But you have many back in Washington and the Pentagon who were ready to pull up stakes and remove the troops. What convinced them to stay in Berlin? It's worth just sort of setting the picture for the blockade, because what happens around Easter time in 1948 is that the Allies, the Western Allies, their access to Berlin, to the Western sectors of Berlin, is via one motorway, one autobahn, one railway route. And what Stalin does in East of 1948, he cuts the autobahn and he cuts the railway, which means that the Americans and the British have no possibility of bringing in supplies to their garrison troops in Western Berlin. These troops are completely cut off from the outside world. But more than that, they also have 2.4 million Berliners for whom they're responsible, for whom they have to keep fed and watered and fueled, basically. And they also cannot be supplied by this road link and this rail link, which has been cut. So the big question is, what do you do? Either you abandon Berlin, and there are many in both London and Washington who said that this was an untenable situation. There's no way the Americans and Brits could stay in Berlin. But there were others, notably Colonel Howley, who said that we absolutely have to stay in Berlin. It's pivotal to the future of not just Berlin and Germany, but to the future of Western Europe. If we give up in Berlin, we're ultimately probably going to give up in Germany and Stalin will have free reign just to take over the entire continent. But this raises an important issue. How on earth are you going to supply the two garrison forces in Berlin and how are you going to supply these 2.4 million Berliners? Well. The city, Howley knows, as an absolute minimum for survival, requires four and a half thousand tons of food every single day. You can't bring it in by train. You can't bring it in by road. So the only other option is to bring it in by air. But here's a problem. Four and a half thousand tons of food is a lot. And the only plane they really have access to is a Dakota. And the Dakota can only carry two and a half tons of food in any mission. So you immediately realize that this is a massive logistical challenge. Can it be done? Can you possibly fly in enough supplies to keep the city supplied in food and fuel? This is really the beginnings of the airlift. 
Colonel Howley, in discussions with General Lucius Clay, they decide to give it a go. They're going to try and do this in conjunction with their British partners. And then you have the beginning of the airlift, which is the most astonishing story. Because what happens is that every available plane that America has, from Alaska to Hawaii to Honolulu to right across the States, every plane is brought into Western Germany. And likewise, the British, every plane from the British Empire, from India, from the Pacific, they are all brought into Western Germany. And the idea is that these planes are going to fly into the two airfields in West Berlin round the clock, 24-7. They're going to land every 90 seconds. They're going to fly into Berlin on five different levels, and they are going to bring in enough food, just enough food, to keep the city alive for as long as Stalin is determined to have this blockade of the city. Yeah, you mentioned the logistical demands, incredibly immense. You talk about characters such as Bill Tonner being brought in to put these plans into action and get Berlin the food and fuel it needs. While this is happening, I mean, the Russians are not just laying back and letting this happen. They're making active efforts to counter the Alif. Do you describe those a little bit? Yeah. Colonel Howley was banking on the fact that although Stalin would cause as much nuisance as he possibly could, he wouldn't dare shoot down any of the Allied planes. And this was a gamble that paid off because, indeed, Stalin, um, he held back from shooting down planes, knowing that that would spark a full-scale war. But what he did do, he got his men on the ground to fire tracer bullets at the incoming planes. They've switched on floodlights at night to try and blind the pilots. They created all sorts of problems, massive problems for the Allied pilots flying in. And of course, there were many disasters and many Americans and British pilots lost their lives. Their planes crashed when they came into land. It was an incredibly dangerous situation. And of course, don't forget that the airlift began in the spring and summer of 1948, but it was still going in the autumn and winter of that year. And Berlin is notorious for its fog, for its snowstorms, for its freezing weather. And there were days and indeed weeks went past when it was almost impossible to land any supplies into the city. And by January 49, even the ever-optimistic Frank Howley was really worried that the Soviets were going to succeed and that they would starve the Western Allies into submission. But just when the airlift sort of reached its lowest point, the weather turned and they were able to renew the airlift, bringing in ever-increasing amounts of supplies. And by the late spring of 1949, they were bringing in not just the requisite 4,500 tons every day, they were flying in up to 12,000 tons a day. And it was at this point that it was realized, I think everyone realized, that the Western Allies, the Americans, Brits, had pulled off the most remarkable feat, really. They had made the airlift a success, and Stalin had failed in his express goal of forcing the Western Allies out of Berlin. I definitely want to talk about, you know, to wrap things up, I want to talk about what made Stalin and the Soviets finally throw in the towel, but... We have a little bit of time. You know, we haven't spoken much about the French, the third of the Western Allies, but their commandant, General Gonneval, had one of the best scenes in the book. Would you share that story with our listeners? Yeah, this is a rather wonderful story. So the French, they'd been consigned the poorest area of Berlin, a rather small area of the city, which was to be their part of the city. And they had very few planes, so they didn't really take part in the airlift at all. However, they did play an important role in that there was a desperate need for a third airfield in Berlin during the blockade. The Allies needed another runway to land supplies. 
And this was to be built in the French sector at the airport now known as Tegel. And this was built in the height of the blockade using labor, the labor forces. Berliners turned out in force to build this airfield. The airfield was duly built, but there was one problem with that airfield is that it had a huge Soviet radio mast at one end of the airfield. And this posed massive problems for the pilots coming into land. And now what happened is that the commandant of the French sector, General Ganevel, decides to take matters into his own hands. He's repeatedly asked the Soviets to take down the radio mast. Not surprisingly, the Soviets declined to do that. They realize this is a fantastic nuisance for the Americans and British pilots. So General Ganevel, he invites the Americans and British round to the newly built Tegel airstrip, and he asks them over a glass of champagne to look at the Soviet radio mast. There's a massive, unexpected explosion, and the Americans and British watch the radio mast crash to the ground, and they realize that General Ganevel has simply decided to destroy the Soviet mast, at which point the Soviet commandant, General Alexander Kotikov, storms round to Tegel and says to General Ganevel, how could you do that? He's absolutely furious. How could you do that? General Ganevel simply sits back in his chair, looks at him with a smile and deliberately misunderstands him. He says, I did it from the base with dynamite. He has simply blown up the Soviet radio mast. And there, at that point, you have your three airfields in Berlin, which really played a key role in enabling the Brits and Americans to fly in even bigger supplies into the city. Right. Yeah. And so to wrap it up, we've got the weather clearing, the three airfields bringing in enough supplies to really supply the residents of Berlin, as well as the Western garrisons. But the Soviets still eventually have to knuckle under. So what other factors are involved? Like, what's the final decision? Why do they decide to lift the siege? I think that Stalin all along was absolutely convinced that the Western allies would throw in the towel. He was convinced that it was impossible to supply a city by air. And he had good reason for this, because he'd been actively involved in the battle for Stalingrad, and he'd seen that the Luftwaffe had tried to supply the German troops on the ground with an airlift, and they'd failed. And he reckoned that exactly the same thing was going to happen in Berlin, that the Americans and Brits simply wouldn't be able to supply a major capital city by air. But as I say, by Easter 1949, it became increasingly apparent that the airlift was working. And behind the scenes, in largely in Washington, actually, Soviet diplomats began discussing the issue with American diplomats. And it was decided the blockade was going to be called off and that effectively the Americans and British had won this first battle for the Cold War. Stalin was forced to stand down. It was a real humiliation for him. And I think it's worth pointing out because this has repercussions that go way beyond Berlin, although they're, of course, incredibly important for the German capital. But also what's been going on behind the scenes is that the Western allies with the Americans have been talking about having some sort of new joint defense treaty. And this, of course, is the North Atlantic Treaty Organization. NATO is born at the very moment of the Soviet blockade of Berlin. And NATO's central tenet, which I'm sure many will be familiar with, is that an attack on one signatory to the treaty is considered an attack on them all. 
And so this is really the beginnings of the Cold War. You've got NATO, you've got the Western powers signing the NATO treaty, and very soon after, you have the Soviets signing the Warsaw Pact. The world at that point has divided into two opposing camps, and this really is the beginnings of the Cold War that is then going to go all the way through until the Berlin Wall falls in 1989. So what happens in Berlin is absolutely central to the shaping of the entire post-war period and the Cold War. It is an amazing story and one I hope that you'll be covering someday soon. And Mr. Milton, I just want to thank you for being our guest on the podcast today. Thank you very much for having me on. It's been a great pleasure. All right. And listeners, Mr. Milton's new book, again, is Checkmate in Berlin, the Cold War showdown that shaped the modern world. To all our listeners, thanks for joining us. Be sure to subscribe to the Army Matters podcast on iTunes and everywhere podcasts are found. The Army Matters podcast series is brought to you by the Association of the United States Army, the U.S. Army's professional association, member-supported, Army-connected. Visit us at AUSA.org for more information or to become a member. Your membership helps AUSA continue to carry out its mission to educate, inform, and connect with the total Army, our industry partners, and our supporters of a strong national defense. For questions or to provide topic recommendations, email us at podcast at AUSA.org. Have a great Army day. Hua.